Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Eric, and this is Speaking of Race. Woo! So we've been pretty methodically working through the history of scientific race concepts in the 18th century, the 1700s, the Enlightenment. And we've been mentioning the contributions of figures like Buffon and Carl Linnaeus and Johann Blumenbach and others. Today we want to take a little bit of a different tack and not, it's still chronological, but instead of walking through the history. Yes, instead of walking through the history, we want to look at sort of a broader concept having to do with questions about how it came to be that African descended bodies, black and brown bodies, became associated with a state of closeness to nature, especially around the time of slavery, and how that still permeates our ideas about what makes an African-American person versus a European-descended person in the U.S. today. So to get at some of this stuff today, we're going to interview Dr. Hillary Green. She's an associate professor of history in the Department of Gender and Race Studies here at the University of Alabama. And so I wanted to start out by asking you, Dr. Green, just to tell us a little bit about the work that you do, what your main areas of focus are, how you became interested in those topics, and what it's been like to teach about those topics and research about them here at the University of Alabama. I am a 19th century U.S. historian who's interested in the U.S. and the Atlantic world more broadly. So for me, that means I um, research slavery, the Civil War, and the Reconstruction post-war era. African-American education and memory. I'm really not just interested in slavery and the Civil War, but what are those legacies in um, terms of freedom, emancipation post-1865, and then how, in particular, how everyday people, not just the leaders, but men, women, um, people of different ethnic groups, different class groups, see themselves in the world. So to not just focus on who writes the stuff, but who are the people who have to listen in um, contemplating how their lives shifted by policy, laws, and the like. Actually, um, I became a 19th century um, historian because that was the easiest way to reconcile my own family history of uh, my mother's family's from South Central Pennsylvania, and they were historically free as early as 1820. My father's family is from the Gullah Sea Islands of South Carolina, and I was born in Boston. So we went on vacations and trying to understand the history and of the family, but also the communities that they came from. The 19th century and the Civil War era became the easy way to understand my place in history, my family's place in history. Um, teaching that at the University of Alabama has been interesting because one of the things, not so much the Reconstruction side and Civil War side, has been the slavery side that has taken a lot of my attention um, here because my second semester here teaching 19th century African-American history, I had a black male student who was a junior say slavery did not exist on our campus. And I could not allow that to happen. We have slave cabins still on our campus. We have all this rich history and legacy. And being in Alabama as a part of the Cotton South and King Cotton, and I'm like, how? who built the buildings here? So I went into the archives and started researching. So I not only now... Um, teach these subjects, I use the campus and its history and its complex history to get my students pulled in and invested in these topics in a way because they are they are part of the legacy of the campus of slavery and post-war period still today. So really I use the campus history and it took an offhand question by a student my second semester here for that to pull in more. 
So I think you and I got to know each other mm-hmm. originally. Well, we came in at the same time, mm-hmm. so that was part of it. But also because one thing that you've done here is to develop a campus tour. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And was that also? That came out of that student. The way I teach is I always bring in history and local examples into the classroom. So it makes history not, oh, that's in the past, that's over there, but how their communities fit into this larger narrative. And that student's question prompted me to go into the special collections at Hull to look at the digitized records that are on Acumen and to develop a walk-in tour that I could fit within a classroom space. And so the third semester here, I was walking the campus in 90-degree heat with my students and then from there, it has just grown in a mass that now I am really known for the slavery tour on campus, but outside my other research interests on memory reconstruction is where I'm known for. So Hillary, I'm thankful that we have another historian here. <laughs> Yay, history. Um, can you give us a big picture background of some of the periodization of like how people would classify things like blackness. Did that have anything to do with the shift in slavery where it took place in the United States or the kinds of things that were on plantations like tobacco versus cotton or anything like that? Yeah. um, One of the biggest things when you look at the institution of slavery, it's good to think about the history of the United States from the colonial era to the revolution, the early national, and then the 1800s and antebellum period. Because in the colonial era and up to the American Revolution, we still have a large number of Africans being imported into the United States. So one of the things that you really shift in terms of discussion of slavery and the different regions is based on ethnic identities and whether or not these particular ethnic identities of particular Africans were good to be enslaved people on plantations or rice um, in the rice culture of South Carolina, indigo and things like that. So you would say um, one of the things that comes out and not just who would be good, but who would be bad. The Igbo, they were too superstitious. They were not good people to import in, whereas some of the other ones from the rice um, culture area, they were perfect to go to South Carolina because they could bring their knowledge of rice cultivation to um, develop that major crash cash crop in the Carolinas. Um, same thing with tobacco. Um, so you would have those different questions about who would be good for a particular crop. So the runaway ads at this time period, you really see it's not just this identity of a black person. It's, okay, they are Igbo looking. They're Angolan looking. So people were looking at these ethnic identities as a way to, and people could read that. So that means when I teach this, people know, like, what does an Igbo person look like? What does this? But this is the language you have in those early ads. Um, after the American Revolution and after the transatlantic slave trade stopped, you stopped seeing those ethnic identities. Is this a black man, a black woman? Uh, uh, they might do a mulatto, a mulatta type of thing, but the ethnic identity just disappears and they just become a black person and colorism really becomes a defining marker and then any scars or different things to describe them so you see where these imported africans came from communities and but then they go back to they're just black so you really see that by the time you get to the 1800s you stop seeing the ethnic identities come in and i think that's really interesting because that's where you see the shift to the cotton development so plantations and um, rice culture of the coast and pre-1800 cash crops before Eli Whitney um, 
comes in with the cotton gin, you have that diversity of different types of people. Then after that, it just becomes black people being sold from those upper states to the deep south, and they just become black. So one thing that we're really interested in in talking about in this episode, you've already touched on, which is sort of the ways in which ethnic identity gets conflated and collapsed and and also associated with ideas of natural physical ability. Mm. Um, and so when was it that it became popular to believe that Native Americans and also people of African descent were somehow hardier or closer to nature and also perhaps more resistant to disease and to adversity, physical adversity, that is, than other groups? Native Americans are interested, and this is where the colonial period really matters. Um, In New England, you see some of that really come up. Um, In Massachusetts, where I'm from originally, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, this identity um, where there's fewer imported Africans there. So the Native American identity, because they're original survivalists, they can live on the frontier, they're hardy, they can survive the winters. They, therefore, are less resistant to disease, but we know from historians, European diseases killed (laughs) a lot of Native Americans. So it's this not seeing the effects of disease in Native communities because they were apart from the colonials. But the Africans... That one really sees early. Jennifer Morgan's book, uh, Labor and Women, this idea of black women being able to suckle over the shoulder, you see that with Native Americans too, but black women in particular, and that you can reproduce these racial things through the um, bodies of women. You start to see early, but the resistance to disease, especially, I think, really becomes popular to the point it's not just scientific knowledge or intellectual thinkers, but everyday people come in the 1800s with slave owners and looking at that the enslaved people working on their cotton plantations can work at all hours that don't need care. And it's in their diaries that and their readings of some of the literature at the time that they start to espouse that black women don't experience pain during labor. We know they experience pain during labor. Yeah. <laughs> they just might not express it right. <laughs> as they're expecting. Um, the other thing is, too, um, this carries on into the Civil War, that black men are immune to being in disease-ridden areas. And when you look at the casualties of black men during the Civil War, um, most of it's from disease. Even those who are the contrabands in Jim Down's book, Sickness from Freedom, death is a major thing because they're not immune to diseases. And this carries all the way up to the Spanish-American War where the U.S. Army and their medical corps are saying, oh, black men are immune to typhoid fever and malaria, and therefore they can be exposed to this, and white soldiers can't be. So it's one of those things that once it gets enshrined into the everyday thinking and then those who are the doctors, the medical techs and the like, it's that 1800s, 19th century where you really see it, it's not just a few, it's across the board and commonly accepted. It's just like an idea in the air that people just accept blindly yeah. without really questioning it. And what do you think was sort of the, the purchase of that idea or the cultural importance of it? Why? Why did it take hold so much? I think it's one of these things about identity and the institution of slavery, that these were superhuman people that were capable of being property. And to remove their humanity, they had to do these incredible feats that they can defy the normal individuals and therefore worthy of being 
force it to be chattel property. So especially in terms of labor, long working hours, reproduction, and that you can work a person over their life and they're tied to a value. And uh, Diana Ramey Berry's book, The Price of the Pound of Flesh and Using the Age Value and the Soul Value and the Ghost Values of People, Remember that even after death, black bodies are still being used for medical training. Death. So you have the life cycle of the enslaved from labor in terms of generating money for the nation and individuals to the labor that's done after death to promote medical training. Wow. Even yeah. with the cadaver trade. So there's this whole idea going back to that African descended bodies are close to nature, it's permanent but worthy of study, but also worthy of study to advance knowledge to affect white Americans and other ethnic groups too. Which I always find mm-hmm. ironic because at the same time there's this idea that mm-hmm. people who are African descended are not the same. Yes. As, are biologically not the same species perhaps mm-hmm. even as people of European descent and yet there's this when it's convenient for our purposes yeah. to treat those bodies as similar, for instance, in medical mm-hmm. experimentation or in medical training, then we'll do that because they're close enough. Yeah, right? and I think the convenience part is the big word there. And yeah. also to, I like to use fantasy, this idea, because I don't know how to sustain this. and how I try to get into the mindset at times to understand and not just dismiss them as crazy. They had a thought process behind it. So trying to get a sense of what is their thought process and then what are the larger implications for those um, individuals who had to live around them and who were affected by those um, medical experimentations, which is one of the things I also look at in my records at UA, but also in this other things is the medical care. Like the doctors are treated enslaved people. They're usually called in much later than other people, but they will be called in and treated and they're taking the same medicines and having these healers on the plantation are valuable commodities to the owners. But when you look at their writings, you would not know that. So it's like the selective remembrance and purposeful forgetting to sustain the system of hierarchy that's in the nation. So you see that slippage all the time. Yeah. Um, what what do we know about the treat, medical treatment that slaves received um, beyond what you've just told us? Um, the more serious cases usually comes with amputations, injury, anything that will lessen the value of a person in terms of sale or their purchasing um, power for their owners. So one of the things that happens is you'll see insurance records for enslaved people, medical records is something that they can be replaced if they can't be fixed. So, um, but a doctor will come in and take care of them for a certain number of days. So we have the receipts of what was given, but not what did they tell these people, how they were treated. We also know, thanks to um, Deidre Cooper Owen's book, Medical Bondage, and others, that some women who have gynecological um, affects and things, they are treated for specific things to advance medicine and treatment. So you'll see a range of different treatments being prescribed during those very severe cases, but a lot of time they have to be very severe in which death is a possibility before owners will take that next step. They'll try to heal for what they know before they'll call in a doctor. So Hillary, do you know more about the kinds of medical experiments that were done? I know, uh, what was it, J. Marion Sims uh, Monument was just taken down in New York City. 
uh, and he was sort of a notorious medical experimentalist. But do we know anything more? Yeah, we know from works like Walter Johnson and other great works on slavery in the antebellum period that doctors would purchase enslaved people to say, I can treat them. And that's their sole reason for purchase. So they'll purchase like very low money and say, I will treat you. And then you read what they're doing. You're like, that will not heal them. So New Orleans and the New Orleans um, slave trade markets, you have a lot of experimentation. So you see it largely in the large cities, but also too, um, this is where the diaries come in. And some of the diaries, whether they're slave traders, we have some that they just put, I did this to a person. And this was the outcome. It's very scientific, very like you're reading a science report. And we have some records there, but the other ones we really have are tied to the institutions that have medical schools. And that's where a lot of the records survive. When you start looking at the institutions, the University of South Carolina, Georgia, and others, you realize, like, oh, no, they're experimenting on all phases, which is one of the interesting things that experimentation continues on up until the Civil War. And I'm thinking about the U.S. Medical Museum during the war, and they're just looking at bodies to, like, say, this is what happens when a bullet hits here. How did they get that idea that was okay because they're practicing on slave people. So it leads to some very nefarious ways in the military is involved. <laughs> but institutions and medical schools is where we can get to that experimentation a lot. We will always have doctors, especially in New Orleans, especially in Charleston and Richmond, who go in, they'll purchase a person to heal and then maintain their records. And it's usually then tied to a medical school in those communities. So was there a gender differential here? Were women more of a subject of scrutiny because of reproductive capacity? I would definitely say yes. And and the reason why I would say that is yes is the fact that you have a wet nurse market. So I know one instance in Charleston where a doctor purchased an African-American woman because her milk would be better. It's this even this idea that lactation Mm -hmm. (laughs) is different. That it's somehow more robust because black bodies are more robust. Yeah. And so in a lot of the surviving records I have, other than the cadavers, that tends to be men. But women are just being experimented on for a variety of issues. And I think it's because at the time, a lot of women died in childbirth. A lot of women died from diseases. So understanding black women to prevent white women from dying was one of the things. So it's definitely gendered. So specifically, I was wondering what we know about what some of the the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, of course, notorious slave owner, how did they talk about race both to their peers and to common folks? I mean, I know that we don't have a lot of their writings about this, but what do we know? Yeah, Jefferson is the classic notorious example because he left behind letters to um, friends and families. They're always having these conversations with elite slave owners. But his notes on Virginia are very useful because, one, he's conflicted. He contradicts himself all the time. But when he's talking about the various races, he links some races to orangutan, great apes. Why these great apes for these classification of people but not others and some that early hierarchy that you can get in the notes of Virginia that carries forward and then at the same time Jefferson when he's talking to other peers it's definitely coded by race and it's coded by gender and I'm thinking about Benjamin Banneker in his scientific 
almanac that he sends to Jefferson in this lengthy leather back. Benjamin Banneker does a lot of scientific thought and explanation in the black community after the American Revolution, but he develops an almanac, very much like almanacs of the period that we associate with Ben Franklin and others, but this one has a little bit more heavy science. And it talks about astronomy, it talks about um, scientific basis, talks about different um, African-American life. It's a really beautiful text and it's visually appealing but also the science behind it is really sound so he is this black intellectual and trying to advance that African Americans and those are African descendant are equal of whites at the turn of the after the American Revolution he's hopeful that the new nation will live up to all men are created equal emphasizing okay, you said this in the Declaration of Independence. You said this here, but you still call us these lobians and going back to these early primates and we're not human. How can you as a scientific thinker think this and believe this? And here's my almanac to prove you wrong. I hope you're open-minded enough to um, read this and believe me as a black man. And he really identifies not just as a black man, but a dark-skinned black man (laughs) in his letter to say, I am pure African. Jefferson takes the almanac, politely responds back, and then later on questions the veracity of the letter and the text because it was done by a black person. So he didn't think that someone could be that articulate, you mean? Articulate and do that complex mathematical and scientific knowledge because of his race. Banneker, even after his almanac, he continues to write. Um, He continues trying to counter that knowledge because he wants to see equality and he has a lot of hope for the nation that gets stashed over time. Franklin is interesting, and I will say I went to Franklin Marshall College. Ben Franklin gave some of the original endowment from Franklin College before it merged in the 1840s, so I've seen a lot of Ben Franklin's writing. Franklin, too, had uh, interesting racial thoughts. um, He didn't write as extensively as Jefferson, but Franklin's writing really was promoting a white America. And so at the time, he is borrowing from Jefferson, borrowing from other, the other founding fathers to promote a creation of a new world that is for white men and those of working classes to succeed. And he's willing to do that at the expense of African-Americans and those African-descended people. Um, I like to bring in Franklin to say it's not just Jefferson. It's also here because categories of race at this time, um, the founding fathers thought slavery was dying. Some of them thought it wasn't going to exist anymore, and they didn't see this institution as expanding. So there's still some flexibility of racial categories and where it's rolling in the United States, but there's also a hardening at the same time and where this new nation comes in. It's one of these um, periods in which it's, for some, like um, Jefferson, they're innate, whereas Franklin's like, oh, it's the environment. It's a messy period where it's really nice to see the founding fathers and use them to show that these categories did not have to become what they became. It could have been different. It could have been different. And this is one of those opportunities that you can get that with. Do we know much about how different religious groups in the United States categorized race. And you mentioned a moment mm-hmm. ago that Franklin was uh, thought that race might be tied somewhat to environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. Jefferson w- was a little bit harder on that. Did different people of different religious backgrounds take different approaches to those sorts of things in the 19th century? Yeah, you really see this. Um, 
the Quakers were a group who also are conflicted. <laughs> um, and you have some Quakers who are slave owners, but you also have Quakers in North Carolina who are more egalitarian and thinking about these are people, a part of the spirit and the religion who, even though on paper, because North Carolina laws prevent them from in, uh, freeing their enslaved people they purchase, they lived as free people on those plantations. So they had their own plot of land. Um, the Catholic Church is also very interesting. Um, and I'm thinking about the Catholic Church in Mobile and the larger cities of New Orleans and um, Richmond and, and Charleston, too, because it was okay for enslaved people to become Catholic, but they couldn't go to the schools. <laughs> uh, some dioceses and some parishes allowed for communion, some did not. So what were the rites of sacrament in the Catholic Church really was contingent on the parish. And I think one of the greatest sources I have used in my first book on black education after the Civil War was the Mobile Archdiocese. They maintain a lot of records. And one of the things was how they talked about race with the Creoles of color, more so than those pure African descendants, because Creoles of color in Alabama were considered free. Parts of the Louisiana Purchase was the Adams Owners Treaty of 1819, um, 1820, that allows Creoles of color to become citizens. So they can own slaves, they can go to schools, they can do a lot of this. Um, and so we have three racial categories. And so when the Catholic Church opens up a school, it's Creoles of color and white mobile children. Black children, free blacks, and slave blacks could not. So this category of race determined education. But after the Civil War, and especially during Jim Crow, the Catholic Church knew which creoles of color were passing. So a modern-day scholar, you cannot out people, but the church knows. So even the legacies of slavery, the legacy of these antebellum period, and then compounded with Jim Crow leads to the Catholic Church, especially in Mobile and some of the Creole cities, to have some very interesting histories. And then the Baptist division, it splits over race and slavery. You have Northern Baptists and you have Southern Baptists. And that's one of the reasons why you have the AME, so the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and then the AMEZ, which is the African Methodist Episcopal Science Church, and then the CME, and it's now Christian, but it was colored Methodist Episcopal <laughs> Church. They're all forming because of the segregation, the force to sit in the nigger pews is what the congregants usually call them. That's where black congregants had to sit. And it's protesting that discrimination in these um, churches that leads to the formation of those separate black independent churches. So slavery divides various religious groups, but issues of race and discrimination you can see carrying through all of these different groups. Who can be a leader? Who can uh, just be a lay person? Who can rise up in the hierarchy of the various faiths? is contingent on race and then gender. Black women just pushed out. <laughs> so you began to inch us sort of into the mm -hmm. post-Civil War period mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think is so interesting about this period that we're talking about is what you've just said a minute ago about how this was a time when racial categories, as we know them today, were sort of solidifying, and it could have happened very differently. Mm -hmm. This is where we see the beginning of eugenics mm -hmm. and the sort of idea of polygenism that we've talked about yeah. in this podcast before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That stuff still has incredible echoes today. Could you talk a little bit about how these ideas of what race is and how it's tied to biology and particularly mm -hmm. to the physical body, how mm -hmm. those still resonate? I think one of the biggest thing is our modern day medical profession does not satisfactorily recognize 
the pain of black women and black bodies in particular. And I'm thinking about the amount of black women who are dying through childbirth. Yeah. And also, too, when they say something's wrong, I have not had this happen to me personally, but I know of others who have, when they go to the doctor and they say something's wrong, they're like, oh, no, you're just in your mind, where there actually is something really wrong. One of the Williams sisters, when she gave birth, and she really almost died. Mm-hmm. And if a tennis star can't have her pain recognized and seen as valid, what does that mean for people like me? And others um, who are less privileged in terms of education level, class level, and access to health care. So recognizing that uh, black and brown bodies were used to advance medical knowledge, but this idea that they're superhuman, that they don't feel pain, that they don't suffer from mental illness and mental stress. My colleague Gwyneth Curry talks about stress levels and health disparities, and it's just like education doesn't matter. You can have a PhD and still physiologically show the same stresses as someone who doesn't. It's the environment and this conditioning of society to not recognize the pain of people goes back to this that African-descended people can be tested on because they don't have pain. And then all these other things that defy normal human qualities still persist in some insidious ways as well. In terms of just sort of the everyday Mm doctor-patient interaction, there's sort of an erasure or Mm -hmm. a denial of the pain of Mm -hmm. black and brown bodies. Yeah, Yeah, and I think it needs to start in the medical schools, Mm -hmm. and which is one of the things where this is where the legacy part comes in. A lot of these medical schools developed and were able to sustain and grow by experimenting and using the cadavers of black and brown bodies. I think they need to take the lead on this, recognizing their history and legacy to like, how can we change how we advance this knowledge that black pain and brown pain doesn't matter and start with the new generation of doctors come out to say, we recognize we were wrong here going forward. These are the steps we're moving forward. And I think by doing that with increased access because of federal policy, and as long as it still exists, (laughs) more people able to go to doctors and building that trust, but also too with eugenics. And I lived in North Carolina that had a long history. The state apologizing are now trying to work out and give money to the, the surviving victims, not so much the descendants. They're still bogged down how they're going to pay the $50,000, and is it going to be $50,000 or going to be less? But black women and also white working class women went to the doctors and because of eugenics are now unable to have children. Tuskegee and the syphilis campaigns and other uh, tests in the bodies of Agent Orange in Vietnam. There's so many. So I think it's the medical profession. The other one is the U.S. military. U.S. military is a source of a lot of experimentation on soldiers and families and descendants of communities. I think it has to be through education, training, and new policies say we can't do this anymore, but recognizing the past and reconcile that we will not move forward that way. But it concerns me that if I ever choose to have a child, I'm like, will anyone recognize that? Will I die because of this, because of this lack of knowledge? I'm this super person, and I do not do well with pain at all, (laughs) at all. (laughs) So for me, I always think about my pain threshold is low, but will that be recognized by a medical professional is another thing. And that's a scary thought to have in 2018. And in many ways, the work on slavery and this legacy is still persists. And that's why I'm trying to think about how can we get rid of that part of it? 
Hillary, thanks so much for coming in today. I feel like I learned a ton in a short <laughs> little bit of time. Thank you so much. And keep on keeping on because your work is super important. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thanks, thanks so much, Hillary. This has been Speaking of Race. I'm Eric, the historian. I am Joe, the cultural anthropologist. Thanks for listening. So we've been talking pretty work. <laughs> so good. I love it. Keep it up, Eric. <laughs>